Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, and I'm the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do something that I think is really important. In this sermon, I'm preaching on Jesus appearing to someone after he died and came back to life, and how that appearance changed the person's life forever. While I hope that all of my sermons are impactful, I think that this one can be particularly valuable because it shows how belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection, can change lives. It can bring peace from our inner struggles, reconciliation with our enemies, forgiveness from our guilt, purpose that goes beyond our circumstances and our lives, and life that goes beyond death. It brings hope to the hopeless, forgiveness to the guilty, and worship to the doubter. It's a big deal. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Can you think of someone that needs what belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection has to offer and share it with them? I know that that is kind of a big request, but belief in Jesus changed my life in such a wonderful and profound way, and I want others to have that same experience. I hope you're the same. I think, or at least hope, that this sermon can be used by God to make that happen. So please share it with someone. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I also hope it will be used by God to change the life of someone you know. All right, well, good afternoon. Uh, I am obviously not Chad. He has the privilege of being back in the kids' ministry uh, because of his planning. He forgot that he booked me to preach and to be in kids' ministry, so he gets to cover me there. And if you've never heard, and I do say here, uh, Chad in kids' ministry, you just might today. Uh, he, he does uh, tend to attempt to be louder than everybody in the room. Uh, but he's going to have fun, and I'm really excited to be able to give him uh, a little bit of a, a break here today, and uh, he can go have fun with his kids back there. And I'm, I'm really used to Chad giving me verses that are really difficult. Uh, I feel like he, he plans it on purpose. He'll say, hey, I want you to preach on this topic. I'm like, sure, what's it about? And he's like, it's God's wrath. I'm like, okay, here we go. Uh, so he, he likes to give me those, but this one is easy. Uh, and I am used to teaching uh, middle school and high school. Uh, that's what I do professionally. So uh, if you feel like I'm teaching at you, uh, that's why. And if I do the quiet coyote, it means you're being too loud. Okay, so uh, just pay attention to those symbols, and, and we'll, we'll get along just fine. But I'm going to take a page out of uh, my good friend Brian back there. Whenever he comes and speaks to my kids at school, he makes them all stand as Scripture is read, and I think uh, that's a good practice to do. So out of reverence for God's holy word, let's all stand as I read our passage for this evening. Uh, John 21, 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. 
When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw fire burning coals, uh, fire burning coals. There were there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. You can sit down. So I want to be very clear from the beginning that I want to answer two questions. The first question has to do with the idea of Jesus, or sorry, Peter jumping out of the boat. Uh, the word there is a word sometimes translated as naked, uh, but can be used in other contexts. It's very likely that Peter was in his underwear. It's a hot day. And when he saw Jesus, he, he put his coat back on and he dove in after Jesus. He got out of the boat. And the question I want us to answer for ourselves today is what gets us out of the boat? That's the first question. And there's a second question here at, at the end, it says that no one dared ask Jesus, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And the other question I want us to ask ourselves is how can you be certain of Jesus in your life? So two questions. What gets you out of the boat? And how can you be certain of Jesus in your life? But I want, I want to take us back through the Bible, because we can't understand John chapter 21 here without seeing it in light of John chapter 20, because something very big happened in John chapter 20. Uh, and, and to understand that, which uh, John chapter 20 was, of course, they saw Jesus for the first time after his death. That was pretty radical. But I want to take us back even farther. And this is to John chapter 12. And usually we'll, we'll go through this uh, leading up to Easter. But it is in John chapter 12, the triumphal entry. Jesus went into Jerusalem. Now, this was a, a really big event. Jesus had just been at a place called Caesarea Philippi. He went just with his disciples. And for the first time ever, he told them, by the way, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And they didn't really understand this. They said, yeah, I mean, once you accomplish what you've come to do, you're going to die. I mean, yeah, yes, of course, you're going to die. They didn't really understand what it meant or in what context that that would happen. But when they saw Jesus after Caesarea Philippi coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey that had never been ridden before, and people saying, Hosanna, 
Blessed the king of Israel. And they're laying those palm branches down. They realize, oh my goodness, here is the king. He's come to save us. If you don't know this, in fact, sometimes because of our English language, we don't realize what Jesus' name is embodying to the people then. In Hebrew, the name for Jesus is Yeshua. And when we translate Yeshua into Greek, which the New Testament is written in, we get Isus. And when we take Isus from the Greek and we translate into English, we get Jesus. That's where Jesus comes from. See, but the early readers, they, they see Jesus and they say, Yeshua, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves or the Lord's salvation. There was another man in the Old Testament who went by the name Yeshua, and that's Joshua. Anyone with the name Joshua shares the name of Jesus. Yeshua, in the Hebrew, straight to English, is just Joshua. And why this is important is because Yeshua, when they see the Lord saves and they think, here comes the king of Israel, of course his name is Joshua, Yeshua, because he is our salvation. The Joshua of the Old Testament is the guy who led them into the promised land. After Moses had, had failed them a bit, he himself didn't take them into the promised land. It was Joshua. How did Joshua deliver Israel? It was by conquest. It was by conquering enemies. The Lord saves through conquering nations. And here comes the king of Israel, Hosanna, blessed is he. Who is he come to conquer? Well, the only people who have the Jews captive, Rome. Jesus is coming to conquer us from our enemies. They had expectations for this Yeshua, because that's just how the Lord saves, by conquering. Now, it's true. They just didn't realize that Jesus was conquering the real enemy, which was sin, which was death. But they had expectations that Jesus would conquer Rome. And when it became clear that Jesus wasn't conquering enemies, instead he was enduring them. The same people that said, blessed the king of Israel, said crucify him. And they put that sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. It was to mock him because he couldn't be the King of the Jews. And when Jesus died on the cross, their expectations for how he should have delivered them were absolutely crushed. Mark puts it very simply in Mark chapter 14, verse 50. It says this, Then everyone deserted him and fled. See, that was a really bad day. I know we call it Good Friday. But it is only Good Friday retrospectively. Because that day, all hope was lost. All of the disciples fled. They were afraid that they too would be persecuted, that they too would die, that this guy who was supposed to save them, my goodness, what happened? He died that didn't meet our expectations of how we're supposed to be saved. Now, 
When God doesn't meet our expectations, that's not God failing. That's us failing to see God's greater plan. And I want to I tell you one of my favorite stories, okay? And it all started in 1873. And this story, just to be clear, is about expectation. In 1873, a prince was born. His name was Prince Kabu. He was the prince of the Ku tribe. He was born in Liberia. And Prince Kabu, his father, who was the chief, once told Prince Kabu, because Prince Kabu said, I want to be just like you, father. I want to be a chief of my tribe and conquer my enemies. And his father said, you know, it's not as easy as you think. People are really hard. They're always wanting to kill each other, and they have this tremendous fear in their heart. He said, if there was ever a chief that could solve the fear in man's hearts that caused them to kill one another, I would gladly lay down my crown to that chief. And Prince Kabu, who idolized his father, still thought to himself, man, I want to be just like my father, the chief. But times were hard, crops were bad. And Prince Kabu's tribe was taken over by another tribe. They came in, they captured Prince Kabu, and they tortured him, and they threw him in, in prison, and they kept him as ransom. In Liberia at the time, it was very tribal. And Prince Kabu's father was made to bow before this chief. And he said, what do you want? Prince Kabu's father what do you, said, what do you want? He said, you need to pay tribute. You need to give us food and lots of it before the next full moon, or we will kill your son, Kabu. And Prince Kabu thought, man, I know my father will do this. My father will save me. He'll do it. He'll get the tribute. It will all work out. In the meantime, Prince Kabu was enduring torture, and it was terrible. And finally, by the next full moon, Prince Kabu was brought out, and tribute was rejected. It wasn't enough. And Prince Kabu's father said, I'm sorry, son, I have failed you. And Prince Kabu was tied to a stake to die by the end of the spear. And even then, Prince Kabu cried out, Father, Father, Father. And then there was a blinding light. And his bonds were loosed. He was free, and he heard a voice from heaven say, Run, Kabu, run. And so he did. He ran, he ran into the jungle, and he lived in the jungle for some time. He tried to visit his tribe, but they were gone. They had been conquered. His father was dead until finally he found somebody who was working a coffee plantation and offered them Prince Kabu shelter. He said, you can come and live here. And when he saw that servant fall on his knees and pray to a father in heaven, he said, wait, what are you doing? Who are you praying to? And this servant on the coffee plantation said, I will show you. You come to this building tomorrow, and I will show you. 
And so he goes to this building. We call it a church. And there was a woman speaking. She was a missionary. Her name was Miss Knowles. Mrs. Knowles, that, that day, wanted to talk about a man named Saul of Tarsus and his journey to Damascus. Now, they sang worship music, and, and, and Prince Gabu was hearing this and thinking, this is all weird. What's happening? I don't understand this. This is very weird tradition. And then when this woman starts talking about a man who persecuted these people called Christians, but then when he was on this road to Damascus, a blinding light came from heaven, and he's on the edge of his seat. A light from heaven. Really? And then she said, yes, and then a voice called out, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Miss Knoll says, do you want to know who this voice was? And Prince Caboose on the edge of the seat, yeah, I want to know. I, I want to know who this voice was. And she said, that was the voice of of Jesus, and he celebrates, and he says, Jesus, Jesus, I know that voice. I know that voice, and Prince Kabu, at the age of 14, becomes a Christian, and he is hungry for the word of God. He stays there at that plantation. He learns as much as he can about Jesus until one day he finally says to Mrs. Knowles, he says, can you Please teach me everything you know because my people need Jesus. My father once told me that if there was ever a king that you could unite people and solve the fear in their hearts, he would gladly lay down his crown, and I have found that king. I need to know everything I can about this man so that I can bring him to my people. Mrs. Knoll said, I've already taught you everything I know. And so he said, then who taught you? She let him know about a man named Stephen Merritt who was living in New York. And by this time, Prince Kabu had changed his name. He was going by Samuel Morris. Samuel Morris was the missionary that had taught Mrs. Knowles. And he said, I want to name myself after the man whose legacy brought you here and, and gave me the faith that I have. So Prince Kabu, now Samuel Morris, he said, fine, I'm going to New York. She's like, you don't know how to get there. He's like, well, God will get me there. I need to go to New York. I need to find Stephen Merritt, and I need to learn all about God so that I can come back here and teach him to my people. Prince Kabu gets on a, a ship. He promises that he'll work uh, for his stay on that ship. Now they're really racist. They're, they treat him very poorly. Uh, but by the end of that trip, to make a long story short there, by the end of that trip, the captain and many of the crew were now followers of Kabu's father in heaven. By the way, that was his favorite way of calling God Father, God the Father, a father who can unite people and calm the fears in their hearts. Well, Prince Kabu makes it to New York. And he goes and he finds Stephen Merritt. Stephen Merritt is teaching this boy and takes him to Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he goes to Taylor University. Taylor University is in a financial crisis. But Prince Kabu changes the entire atmosphere. In fact, uh, Dr. Reed, the president of that university, 
heard Prince Kabu's story. He had to write about it. And, and Prince Kabu's story alone saved the university from financial crisis. They became one of the biggest nexuses of missionary work around the world. Prince Kabu would go from church to church telling his story, and he would tell them each, my one solemn desire, the prayer of my heart, is to go back to my people and tell them about Jesus. And at the age of 20 years old, he gets pneumonia. And he's on his deathbed. And people around him are weeping. Prince Kabu, I'm so sorry. All you, all you ever wanted to do was go to your people and teach them about Jesus and you're going to die. And Prince Kabu says, isn't it great? My father calls me home. And if my father calls me home, do you know what that means? His famous line on his deathbed? It means that Jesus has greater workers than me. See, when God didn't meet Kabu's expectations for his life, he knew that there were greater plans at work. The disciples here are missing the greater plans. They don't see it yet. They are scared. They are locked away. Christ has died. What possible plans could there be? And in John chapter 20, their faith becomes final, it becomes real because they see the risen Jesus and it all begins to make sense. Jesus came not to conquer Rome, but to conquer the enemy that has all people captive, sin and death. Their faith became real. Now I teach a uh, a group uh, every Monday. It's a Bible study for young adults. And we have a few Catholics that go there. And one of them is in seminary to become a priest. And just this last week, he, he grabbed me and he pulled me aside afterwards and he said, hey, something I've always wondered about. When you go into a Catholic church you see a crucifix. If you don't know the difference, a crucifix is a cross with Jesus' body on it. But when you go to a Protestant church, you see a cross with no body on it. He said, why is it that you always have crosses with no Jesus on it, and when you go to a Catholic church, there's always Jesus on the cross? You know, because at a Catholic Mass, we always try to remember the death of Jesus. And I told him, where is Jesus now? He's in seminary. He said, well, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in heaven. And I said, so Jesus isn't on the cross? No. So that's why we don't have Jesus on the cross, because the cross is empty. Much like the tomb. The cross is empty. And why is this important? Because in John, before John chapter 20, when Jesus died, everything was hopeless. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians, people were actually teaching, yeah, I believe that Jesus stuff, but I don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul is very, very clear. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 19. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For only if in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. If Christ did not raise from the dead, we are dead in our sins. This is the most crucial teaching in all of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus gave everybody hope. If Christ did not raise, our faith is useless. So when the disciples saw this, their faith became real. I got to tell you something about the resurrection, though, because I think it's really cool. It is the most important miracle in all of the Bible, the resurrection. Our faith hinges on the resurrection. And God went out of his way to make one miracle in the Bible virtually undeniable. And it is the resurrection. And here's what I mean by virtually undeniable. So Gary Habermas, uh, he is the foremost scholar on the resurrection. But he compiled things called six minimal facts. That means when you go to a room and you want to talk to somebody about Jesus and and you say, hey, Jesus is talked about here in the Bible. And they say, I don't want to read a book of mythologies. I don't want to read that Bible. It's unreliable. We shouldn't look to the Bible. You know what you can say to someone like that when you're talking about the resurrection? You can say, okay. Let's treat the Bible like any other book of history. It's unreliable. You can't trust it. It's mythological. It's got plenty of falsehoods in it. Let's assume that. Six minimal facts of the resurrection. These are facts that no scholar, atheist, agnostic, anyone, any critical historian, they don't deny these facts. Because these facts are attested by history and are virtually undeniable. So let's talk about those six facts. The first fact is this. Jesus died on a cross. They don't deny this. In fact, the the American Medical Association very famously looked at the evidence of, of the cross and Jesus and said there's one undeniable fact, and that's that Jesus died on that cross. He died. The second minimal fact that nobody denies is the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. We have to explain the empty tomb. Jesus died, he was put in it, and then he wasn't there anymore. We have to explain the empty tomb. That's why in the Bible it says, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. We'll come back to that. The third minimal fact, and this is a cool one, this has to do with our, they saw Jesus. No historian disagrees with this. They're called post-mortem visitations. The disciples, at the very least, believed they saw the risen Jesus. So you're going to get a lot of crazy hypotheses out there for explaining how, the, how 
The disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus because it changed their lives. It radically altered the course of their lives. They believed they saw the risen Jesus. One of the prevailing beliefs out there is that they all hallucinated. Now, people hallucinate, but they don't often do it in groups, right? Now, the fourth and fifth minimal fact is really cool as well. They have to do with two people, James and Paul. James was the brother of Jesus, and he did not believe in the life and ministry of Jesus when Jesus was alive. It was not until he saw or believed he saw the resurrected Jesus that he became a firm believer in Jesus. And Paul, very similarly, was a critic of Christianity until he believed he experienced the risen Jesus. And the sixth minimal fact is this, that the resurrection was part of our earliest teachings. There's no time for legend. The earliest Christian teachings include the resurrection. So there was no like, hey, let's make the story and it gets crazier over time with stories. There was no time for that. It was our earliest tradition. And these minimal facts that all historians agree on create a really strong case for the authenticity of the resurrection. There's no way the disciples stole the body because every single one of the disciples suffered and all but one were martyred for this belief. I don't know about you, but we see on the news all the time people die for things that they believe to be true. But how many die for things they know to be false. The disciples were convinced, convinced in their hearts that Jesus rose from the dead. They were in hiding, and now they were willing to suffer and to die. And I want you to hear this. It's important. Jesus did not come to conquer all your earthly problems. He made them worth the cost. He made the struggles you endure in this life worth it. In Philippians 1.29, it says this. Think about the ramifications of this verse. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him. The disciples weren't excited when they saw Jesus because all their suffering and hardships were going to go away. They were excited because they knew that all of their hardships and suffering and the suffering to come would be worth it. It would be worth it. Jesus had performed that miracle before of the fish and, and, and overloading their boat. See, but when, when Peter was, his boat was full, full of all those fish, he didn't say, finally, I got what I wanted. He jumped out of the boat, leaving all the fish behind because the only thing he wanted was Jesus. And we should not in our lives be getting out of the boat in hopes of getting something other than Jesus from Jesus. See, Jesus filled Peter's boat, but he said, I don't care, I want you, Jesus. I'm jumping out of the boat 
because all I want is you. I think that's pretty radical. And I want to remind you of something. Because the disciples who were so afraid and now were so willing to suffer for Jesus uh, did so because of their experience with the risen Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. And it is a faith that says, Jesus, I'm not coming to you to get anything other than you. I need you to hear that if you're going to Jesus for something other than Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Jesus said that to follow me comes with a cost, and that cost may be your very life. Jesus has a wonderful plan for you. And I want to read to you the wonderful plans that God had for the disciples. Andrew was the brother of Peter, and he died by being bound to an X-shaped cross. And when he wouldn't die, he hung there for two days. Uh, He was eventually stabbed to death. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was skinned alive and crucified, head down. James the Greater was stabbed by Herod of Agrippa in 44 AD. James the Lesser was the first bishop of Jerusalem, and he was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and then stoned to death when he wouldn't die. John, the beloved disciple, lived to be an old man and died of old age, but it's important for you to know that he was boiled alive before then. He just didn't die. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, he was beaten with a club and then crucified. Judas Iscariot, we know, killed himself as a follower of Jesus Matthew, also known as Levi, he martyred about 60 AD. He was staked on a spear. Simon Peter, who at once was so afraid of dying, even denying Jesus, that the only thing he was now afraid of was being crucified. And so when people thought of the cross, they might think of him. And he thought, no, that can't be. And he begged and pleaded that they crucify him upside down so that the cross would only be for Jesus. And so Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was impaled by iron hooks and hung upside down for two days until he died. Simon the Zealot, he was martyred again by being sawed in half. Thomas, also known as Didymus, he was stabbed to death with a spear in his side. And an interesting note here is that Thomas has the greatest doxology for, for Jesus ever. He was the doubter, if you remember. And he asked, I won't believe in this resurrected Jesus until I feel his wounds, until I stick my hand into his side. And so there in John chapter 20, when, when Thomas is there and sees it, Jesus goes to Thomas and says, come, feel my side. And 
And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He doubted the wound in Jesus' side. He needed to feel it. He died with a spear to his side. Other notables who aren't, weren't among the 12 disciples were Mark, who was dragged to death, who wrote our book of Mark, Luke, who wrote Luke in Acts. He was hung from an olive tree. Matthias was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. He was the 13th disciple. And the apostle Paul was beheaded uh, during the time of Nero. These are the founders of our Christian faith the fathers of our faith, the people who brought it to all the known world. And all of them were willing to follow Jesus at great cost, not because it was easy, but because it was worth it. What gets you out of the boat? If you do not have a John chapter 20 experience where your faith becomes real, then you're going to stay in the boat. You need to believe in the resurrected Jesus. You need to believe with all your heart that he saved you and that your earthly struggles, your earthly hardships are worth it. Sometimes in your life, you may be compelled to do something that you don't want to do that will be really hard to do, but it will be the right thing to do. And if people at churches are telling you, hey, Jesus has came down to give you everything you ever desired and to make your life easy, they're lying to you. It's very clear that we are called not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake, and he made it worth it. Get out of the boat because you love Jesus, and you are so excited to follow hard after him. And if Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, rejoice because he's got better plans. Now I've got a second point in tons of time. That's a joke. This, will be, this is very easy. If you remember, I said, hey, what gets you out of the boat? And if you, and, and if you don't have a John chapter 20 experience of a faith that transforms your heart, that's what you need. You'll want to get out of the boat when you see Jesus if you've allowed Jesus to transform your heart. Now, how can you be certain of Jesus in your life? Here's what's cool. When they were out there on the water, Jesus performed a miracle that he had done before. And the one whom Jesus loved said, that's the Lord. We know what this is like. That's the Lord. Peter was willing to jump out and follow him. They all dared not ask, who is this? Because they knew it was the Lord. How can you know it's the Lord in your life? And the answer is simple. You need to learn what Jesus sounds like. You cannot come every Sunday 
and listen to a sermon and say, good, good, good. Now I know what Jesus sounds like. We are so blessed to have the word of God in our lives. We have the Bible and that is what God sounds like. You read your Bible and you will become familiar with the voice of God. And you will be able to look and discern the things in your life and know that is Jesus. That is what Jesus sounds like. It says this in, in Matthew, um, or sorry, in John chapter 10, verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. I want you to get out of the boat. And I want you to get out of the boat because you have a strong desire for Jesus alone. You're not going to Jesus to get what you really want. You're going to Jesus because he's all you want. And if that's all you want, then you will be hungry in your life to know what he sounds like. The word of God will become food that you are desperate for. And I'm asking that you have transformed hearts. Asking that you are so in love with Jesus that you're desperate for his every word. And you won't just go to the Bible because I'm asking you to or because somebody else asked you to, but because you just want to know what Jesus sounds like so that you'll know what he sounds like in your life. Because God does not change. And the God who spoke in the Bible speaks now today in your life. And I just hope that you learn his voice so you can hear it. So again, get out of the boat. Have a transformed experience of Jesus and be hungry for his word, his gospel as revealed in the Bible. So thank you, everybody, and let me pray. Lord, just thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about your word. And you are a God worth getting out of the boat for, God. I pray that we would be people who go to you not to get the desires of, of money or of fame or of health and wealth, God, but we go to you because all we want is you. We thank you that you are a God who resurrected, that you made what was hopeless our only hope, God. You are our only hope. And I pray that the people here, God, who have, who have not had that John 20 experience, God, of, a, of a, re, a faith made real, that they would go to you and ask for it, God, and that you would become real to them in their hearts, and that they would hunger for your words, that they could know your voice. I thank you again for the opportunity to be able to preach. I thank you that we have your word so freely in, in this place, God. And I pray that, again, we would be people who are living with transformed hearts. And we love you in your precious name. Amen.